0: I'm sad to report that Norman Lippitt has died at the age of 85. Norm was our very first guest on the Litigation War Room. He may have been our best one, too. Though his physical health was declining when he did the interview, Norm's mind was sharp as ever. He shared some amazing war stories from his story legal career and offered some really valuable advice for courtroom lawyers. Norman Lippitt was a lion of the law. In honor of his legacy, we're replaying his interview on the Litigation War Room. Rest in peace, Norman.
1: Welcome to the Litigation War Room, where you will hear great stories and great insights from some of the nation's most accomplished courtroom lawyers. Here is your host, litigation attorney Maxwell Goss. On this episode, I talk with legendary trial lawyer Norman
0: Lippitt of the law firm Lippitt O'Keefe in Birmingham, Michigan. Norm reflects on more than 50 years of litigation and trial practice, first as a prosecutor, then as a high-profile criminal defense lawyer, and finally, after a stint on the judicial bench, as a civil trial lawyer trying one major case after another for prominent individuals and businesses. Norm is the author of In the Trenches, Guerrilla Warfare and Other Trial Tactics. Renowned for his mastery of the courtroom as well as his flamboyant personality, Norm shares some entertaining stories and in his insights on the art of cross-examination. Norman Lippitt, welcome and thank you for joining the litigation war room. Oh, thank you
2: for having me. My pleasure.
0: Norm, I look forward to talking with you today about your amazing career and to getting some of your reflections on litigation and trial practice. But before we dig in, why don't you tell our listeners just a bit about yourself and about your practice and about your law firm, Lipid O'Keefe?
2: Well, today my law firm is a full-service boutique law firm composed of around eight or ten lawyers. And uh, my focus has been for the last 30 years on commercial litigation and some family law. And with your help, delved once or twice into intellectual
0: <laughs> Intellectual property? Yes. <laughs> but only with your help, Max. Of course. Of course. That was a fun case. That was the trademark case that we had with Judge Levy in the Eastern District of Michigan. That's correct. Now, I was excited about that case because I thought I was finally going to get to try a case with Norman Lippitt. And we got pretty close. It didn't quite settle on the courthouse steps. I believe it settled in the court staff's lunchroom. I think you're right. Norm, by my count, you've had at least three different careers. I know you started out, maybe it's four careers. You started out as a prosecutor. Then you were a criminal defense lawyer with some high-profile cases. Then you were a judge, and then you went on to a more general civil practice and handled some very interesting cases.
2: That's correct, Max.
0: Can you just tell us a little bit about each of those? I mean, tell us how you got your start as a prosecutor.
2: Well, I got my start as a prosecutor by accident. I uh, was appointed as an assistant prosecutor of Wayne County through the fact that my wife's grandfather knew the prosecutor. (laughs) I needed a job. We're talking about 1961, by the way. Uh, I wanted to be something else, but I ended up with a job in the prosecutor's office at fifty four hundred bucks a year, night staff, and then for four and a half years, I I remained there, and probably tried oh maybe a hundred felony cases with juries. That's where I learned my trade.
0: Mm-hmm. And that's the kind of experience that's so hard to come by.
2: Very difficult today to come to have that experience, and and in those days. Uh, I dealt mostly with the Detroit Police Department. And in those days, the criminal defense lawyers were excellent. And so were the so was the Detroit Police detective bureau. and i I learned my trade. they They taught me what to do and what not to do.
0: and from there, you went into criminal defense
2: well i re- I resigned from the prosecutor's office uh, in nineteen sixty five. With the idea that I would open a general practice in downtown Detroit, I didn't want to be exclusively a criminal lawyer, and I wasn't. I had some civil cases as well. And uh, two years later, the Detroit Police Officers Association walked in my office and asked me to represent them. And from then on, for the next 14 years, I I did a lot of work for for the cops, not only the DPOA but other police associations as well. And very frankly, they were always, there was always something going on. And a lot of, uh, a lot of publicity, a lot of uh, infamous cases came about, the most prominent of which was the Algiers Motel case, which was uh, portrayed in a movie that was produced by Catherine Biglow a couple of years ago called Detroit. I was the lawyer in that case.
0: Can you tell us a little bit about the Algiers Motel case?
2: Well, the Algiers Motel case resulted from the riots in Detroit in 1967, July. Three uh, police officers were charged with murder. Two were charged with murder, and uh, they were charged with violation of doing a lawful act in an unlawful fashion on the state side, and they were charged with federal federally with uh, civil rights violations. There were two trials. One was a murder case uh, where the defendant was Ronald August, and uh, the federal case was tried a year later where the three officers were charged with conspiracy to violate civil rights. Two black youths were found dead in the motel, and the police were charged with their demise. The uh, murder case was transferred with change of venue uh, to Ingham County. The federal case was sent to Flint, Michigan, where it was tried. The defendants were all found not guilty.
0: Were the cards stacked against you in those cases?
2: I, I have to say that the witnesses were, very, uh, were not very good. Uh, one witness was so upset with me when I was cross-examining him, he actually walked off the stand and said, I'm leaving. <laughs> the judge had to order him back. <laughs> uh, the prosecutor uh, made some, uh, some serious errors during the course of the trial, and that was the state case. The federal case was a little more complicated. The U.S. attorneys were uh, far more competent than the prosecutor, and that, that jury was out 12 hours before they found the defendants not guilty. It went on from there. For the next 14 years, I represented the cops in a number of cases, not only white police officers, but African-American police officers as well, who were also charged with various criminal offenses along the way. Uh, they used, in those days, there were at least two or three police shootings a week. And based on the infamous case of Garrity versus New Jersey, U.S. Supreme Court, they were entitled to representation before they made a statement about what happened on the street. And my office would cover all of these events. It was, quite, uh, it was quite interesting.
0: Yeah, well, I think that could be a whole podcast episode in itself. But from there, so you did that for about 14 years. And so I think that's, um, we're through two of your four careers now. And then you had a stint as a circuit court judge. And for our listeners outside of Michigan, the circuit courts in Michigan are the state courts of general jurisdiction
2: it's general jurisdiction. I was appointed by the governor in 1985.
0: That's Governor, uh, governor Blanchard?
2: the Governor Jim Blanchard, yes. Mm-hmm. And uh, I served as a circuit judge for slightly less than four years. And we, as a circuit judge, you handled everything. Cir- uh, criminal, civil, as well as family law. Today, the, the courts are segregated. The family court is part of the circuit court, but it's a separate division.
0: And then from there, my understanding is that's when you really, after your time on the bench, that's when you really pivoted to handling civil cases.
2: That's correct. I decided I wasn't going to do any more criminal work. And I, and I have to tell you, uh, during the time I represented the police, I also did civil work. And I also represented a, a lot of white collar criminal cases in federal court as well. So I did all of that.
0: Well, why did you make the decision to move away from criminal work and focus on the civil and uh, matrimonial?
2: You know, I just got tired of representing people charged with criminal offenses, and it was too much. I don't know, too much pressure, and I felt that there was a, it would be financially more beneficial for me to, with my circuit court experience and reputation, uh, to handle uh, large commercial matters for both. Uh, large companies as well as individual cases.
0: So you left the bench then around when?
2: I left the bench in 1989,
0: 88, And since that time, I know you've had a number of uh, very interesting cases, a number of interesting clients. Uh, can you just give us kind of a sampling of some of those clients you've represented?
2: Uh, Matty Maroon was uh, probably one of the wealthiest men in the in the state of Michigan, if not the the country. He owned the Ambassador Bridge, as well as Central Trucking and various other entities. And his sisters, the Maroon sisters, uh, sued him for shareholder oppression, stating that he had uh, deprived them of corporate opportunities. And that was a very, very long trial. That ended in the 12th week with a a settlement, just before the jury was uh, about to retire and deliberate. And that case is interesting because At the last minute, the plaintiff's attorney brought in Sussman and Godfrey from Houston, Texas. Their credentials were unbelievably impressive. Sussman had uh, been a Supreme Court, United States Supreme Court clerk. His son, who was part of the team, had also been a United States Supreme Court clerk. They had won cases, major cases all over the country. And so I, uh, I had some very worthwhile opponents. And had I not had 25 years of experience in a courtroom, uh, I probably would have melted away. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's amazing. And so and that settled basically just as had it been given to the jury yet or was the.
2: No, just before closing argument. We OK. Settled, After 12 weeks of trial.
0: What about Jeffrey Feiger? Jeffrey Feiger, prominent, famous personal injury attorney. You represented him as well.
2: Jeffrey Figer filed a lawsuit against an Arizona attorney. Well, he was first retained by Jeffrey to be local counsel on two major automobile accidents in Arizona. It's quite common for Figer to try cases outside of the state, and he needed local counsel to assist him. For some silly reason, Figer's admittance to the bar in Arizona, I don't know if it's important, uh, was denied. And so the attorney in Arizona agreed to represent Jeffrey and thought that he could easily have him approved by the Arizona bar to try the case out there. Instead of representing Jeffrey properly, the lawyer stole the two cases that he had already been retained on. And uh, of course, Jeffrey lost several millions of dollars because he would have obtained a, a much greater result than the, the local attorney who was not that well experienced as far as trying cases was concerned. In any event, the lawyer, we obtained jurisdiction in Michigan and he filed a lawsuit here for malpractice. And uh, Jeffrey and I tried the case together, actually. He, he co counseled it with me. Jeffrey is an interesting guy, good trial lawyer, but has a lot of other issues as far as I'm concerned. In any event, after I made my opening statement, which was quite lengthy, uh, Jeffrey said to me, oh, that's the worst opening statement I ever heard in my life. And, <laughs> uh, and I, and I kind of thought that was interesting. But in any event, we ended up with a several million dollar verdict on that case. And of course, Jeffrey didn't pay me everything he owed me. So.
0: <laughs> well, I guess the opening statement did the job then. Yeah. And then you mentioned earlier the Jay Kogan case. And apart from the case itself, or sort of ancillary to the case, we might say there's a hilarious story in your book. Probably it wasn't funny at the time, but it certainly seems funny in retrospect about a little dust up with Jay Cogan. Jay Kogan being a mall owner in the Detroit area.
2: Jay Cogan owned a major mall in, uh, in Troy, Michigan called the Oakland Mall. It uh, was his major asset. Jay Colgan was a very, very eccentric, cranky old man who uh, actually was very intelligent. He graduated from MIT. I'd been married three times. This was marriage number three. His wife, Gloria, uh, retained me to represent her. During uh, the divorce, we took the deposition of one of his girlfriends. He had several of them. uh, And... It was taken in my office by one of my associates, who happened to be an Arab. She was Muslim. Her family came from Egypt, and uh, Kogan was Jewish. So she introduced herself at the deposition. She was at in my office. I was at in my office. She was at a deposition room. And uh, when the deposition started, of course, Kogan came with three lawyers to the deposition, he came with a cylindrical object wrapped in christmas paper that turned out to be a police billy club uh, and uh, when she had introduced herself she said my name is gave her name to this is the time and date for the deposition of so and so miss x Kogan immediately uh, interrupted her and said what did you say your name was and she said and she said, he says are you an arab and sh- she said yes i happen to be arab and he said uh, I don't like A. Rabs. You've been mean to my people for 5,000 years. She uh, didn't know what to do except to run to my office and uh, told me what had happened. I walked into the deposition room and I looked at the court reporter and I said, read back to me exactly what Mr. Kogan said. And my associate's rendition of what happened was very accurate. So I looked at his lawyer And I said to her, she was a she, I said to her, remove Mr. Kogan from my office immediately. Uh, I want him out of here now. Uh, She said, "Okay, okay." I went back to my office and I asked my secretary whether the other conference room that I had scheduled for a meeting was available. And she said, no, Mr. Kogan is in there with his attorney. So I went into the conference room and I said, I told you to remove him from my office now. Uh, she said, OK, OK. And he came up to me nose to nose. Uh, he must have been like 135, 140 pounds soaking wet. He was in his 70s at the time. I was in my 50s. And he said, uh, well, let me tell you something, Mr. Lipshitz. Well, my name is Lippitt. So with that, I, I sort of tried to usher him out of the office. I didn't push him or anything like that. Anyway, the the Mr. Kogan tripped. <laughs> he hit his head on the baseboard in my reception area, and the next thing I knew, someone punched me in the in my side of my head, and it turned out that he had a He had a bodyguard. My glasses fell off. The bodyguard crushed my glasses on the floor. My clerk grabbed me so I wouldn't hit him back, and I went back to my office to call my wife to get me. The tell that a clerk was coming over to get my other glasses. And in any event, while I'm in my office, I hear screaming in the reception area. And my partner, Jay Leonard Hyman, who was as old as Kogan and who had represented wife number two, at which time Kogan had thrown a cup of tea in his face, punched Kogan in the nose, and he may have hit the I'm not sure if he hit the bodyguard or not, but all three of them were on the floor screaming. The clerks from my office and my partner's son, Douglas, pulled him apart. Next thing we knew, the police were there, EMS was there, and they took Kogan to the hospital, I guess. And the next morning, one of the Detroit newspapers it said that uh, there was a big fight in a, a Birmingham office. I forgot what they called me in. It made headlines. So I decided that we needed to get before the judge to let him know what happened. And uh, my excuse was a mo- an emergency motion to prevent Mr. Kogan from attending any further depositions that, that weren't his own. Uh, I knew the judge wouldn't grant it, but at least he'd know what went on. So I think two days later, we appeared before the court. They wheeled Kogan in in a wheelchair with a turban around his head and a hospital band on his wrist, and the, and the, and the wheelchair said Oakland <laughs> Mall on the on the back of it. <laughs> The judge, uh, who was a very conservative gentleman who never smiled or laughed uh, from the bench, was actually giggling when he heard the story. In any event, uh, nothing came of that motion, but at least the judge knew what was going on. Mm-hmm. It was tried several months later, and we obtained a, a, an award of several billion dollars. I, t- I forgot to tell you the best part about the story. Uh, Emanuel Stewart who uh, is the famous, was the famous Kronk gym promoter where Tommy Hearns trained and many other famous fighters, uh, awarded Leonard and I varsity jackets, uh, you know, like uh, like football jackets that the varsity wear. And the front of my jacket said uh, Storm and Norman. And the front of Leonard's jacket said One Punch Hyman. <laughs> and to the day he died... The day he died, Leonard had a pair of boxing gloves on his wall that were given to him by Tommy (laughs) Hearns.
0: That is a great story. And you still have your jacket, don't you?
2: I'm looking at it right now. It's It's hanging in my office.
0: That's great. Well, on this podcast, we try to zoom in. On each episode with a particular case the guest has handled, now you've already talked about a bunch, but I did want to talk about the one that you call in your book, O'Keefe v. Costello, which was a palimony case um, or something like a palimony case. Can you tell us a little bit about that and what is palimony to start?
2: Michigan doesn't recognize palimony, which is support for, I guess you could call it girlfriend support uh, or boyfriend support, whatever. In any event, uh, there's about five or six states that recognize palimony. Michigan is not one of them. And so uh, uh, we proceeded on what is uh, known as breach of contract. They had, had lived together for many years. She was very much younger than him. He was very wealthy. Uh, he had promised her that if they ever separated or he passed away, that she would uh, continue to live in the manner that she had grown accustomed to, which included nine homes around the country, including Palm Springs. One in Michigan, one in Canada, which included a 100-foot private yacht, which included private, a private jet, uh, which included a very luxurious lifestyle, probably in the neighborhood of uh, $2 million a year just to support her. And so um, we filed a lawsuit in Michigan, and uh, we went to trial and tried the case and obtained a verdict of several million dollars. How did you go about tackling the case? Well, first of all, there was an issue of uh, his company. I guess you could say she was on the payroll, but only, to, only so she could have the benefit of Blue Cross. We did not name the company as a defendant in the case because we were concerned about the law in Michigan that there, we have what is known as employment at will. You can terminate anybody without a written contract for any reason whatsoever. And the defense never picked up on that defense, uh, fortunately so. And uh, so we just sued him individually. And uh, we uh, also hired a jury consultant and spent a great deal of time determining what kind of jury we wanted. I was very concerned that women would not look favorably upon her because of the way she lived. Actually, she was very conservative. She was a very nice lady, very educated and had done a lot and performed a lot of services for him over the years, which was the basis for the contract. in any event, it turned out after we did the mock juries that uh, women were more favorable to her than men and fortunately, when we drew the actual jury we 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 obtained a jury of six women and one man, so it was pretty good. We got lucky we got lucky
0: mm-hmm.
2: and uh, we tried the case uh, based on breach of contract. The other thing that is very important for lawyers, is that the client must understand the law concerning her claim. Breach a contract for lawyers is pretty easy to understand, but for lay people, they sometimes have difficulty articulating what is known as offer, what is known as acceptance, and what is known as consideration. And she had to be able to articulate the consideration that she had provided him over the years in exchange for his promise. And I'll be honest with you, I think that by the time she got to trial, she was as well schooled on the law of breach of contract as any lawyer I know.
0: Right. This is all premised on an oral contract. So if she doesn't, she's not able to articulate it in her deposition at trial, then it fails uh, for indefiniteness.
2: And and you, you mentioned oral contract, you know, during the voir dire examination where we question the jurors as to their qualifications. One of the principal, important questions I asked each juror was, can they accept the fact that there is a contract without a writing? And there were some jurors, some of the men who are businessmen, who said, I can't accept any contract that's not in writing. And of course, we excused those potential jurors.
0: Well, tell us a little about the trial itself. Well,
2: In all important cases, I take the defendant's deposition, obviously, prior to trial. And one of the principal bases upon which you destroy a witness or the opposing party at trial is through the use of his deposition or her deposition, where their answers to questions may have been inconsistent with what they're saying at trial. So lawyers always say do you recall that question being asked you at your deposition and were you under oath at the time and why is this do you recall this question being asked you and you giving this answer and why is that answer different than the one you're giving us today that's a classic method of what they call impeachment well in important cases you should do it by video so instead of just repeating the question and answer from the deposition you play the video Well, the defendant in this case, uh, Mr. Costello, was extremely arrogant and obnoxious during the course of his deposition, which is his lawyer's fault. His lawyer should have schooled him better. And so it was quite easy to impeach him by the use of his prior testimony. And I did it repeatedly during the trial.
0: Both as to the positions he took, but also as to his general demeanor.
2: Yeah, his demeanor, of course, was entirely different.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And then I understand some love letters came in at trial. Yeah, the
2: defense thought that the fact that she had written him so many love letters, even after their breakup, that that somehow was a defense to uh, our claim. That, oh, this is just the woman who's in love. I, I, I expect that was his, his motive. But when the jury heard these letters and they were read to the jury, I saw some of the women with, actually had tears in their eyes. They actually felt sorry for my client. I think it was one of the biggest mistakes defense made during the course of the trial. And the other the other big mistake he made was saying to I had three lawyers there, including myself. Obviously, we were working on a contingency. She didn't have any money. So the attorney in, in his closing argument says, Don't don't you think that Mr. Lippitt and his team here are gonna share in any reward they expect you to, to give her? And most attorneys would, would stand up and object to that kind of a remark because it really is prejudicial. But in my case, I decided that it was beneficial. And so I got up in my closing argument, I had rebuttal, and I said to the jury, of course we're going to share it in the reward. Do you think this woman, this woman who has no money, can afford three lawyers sitting here for all these weeks uh, listening to this testimony and assisting her in her, her, the prosecution of this case? Of course not. Of course we're going to share the money. How else are we going to get paid? And how else is she going to get paid? And I think that blew up in his face.
0: Right. And here she is up against somebody with very deep pockets who's paying top dollar for his whole team. A multi, of,
2: a multi-millionaire, multi-millionaire, several millions of dollars.
0: Right. Right. Sounds like one of many ways that you turn the tables during the trial.
2: That's correct.
0: And it went to verdict and you got a multi-million dollar settlement? Did it go up on appeal? We got a
2: verdict and a judgment, and uh, I think it was $10 million. And uh, they appealed, of course, but we resolved the case before the appeal was uh, resolved. They settled They settled it for very close to $10 million, as I recall.
0: Norman, you're a legendary cross-examiner. One thing I wanted to ask you was, what's something that every lawyer needs to understand about cross-examination? <laughs>
2: You've got to be like a cat on a hot tin roof, if you know what I mean. You have to understand human nature. And you have to be able to detect arrogance in a witness. You have to be able to detect uncertainty in a witness. You have to be able to detect missing details that might be beneficial to you. And I have to say the same thing that Jay Leno said when they asked him about his comedic talent. You have to have a natural ability. I mean, what makes a great pianist, a great violinist? What made Abraham Lincoln have the ability to write a 22-minute speech called the Gettysburg Address? I mean, that's, you can't learn that. You just either have, to, you have it or you don't. But even if you have this natural talent, this natural ability, it takes years of experience to perfect it. And uh, I think that many things in my life I've failed at. Yes, we all have. But I developed very early on a natural ability to uh, cross-examine witnesses. And I guess the bottom line is this, Max. When you cross-examine a witness, the golden rule is don't lose. You may not gain anything. You may not win, but don't lose. If you feel that you can't pierce the veil, don't make a fool of yourself. Sit out and shut up.
0: Sometimes uh, lawyers talking about the one question too many. Is that what you're referring to?
2: Uh, That's part of it. In the Maddie Maroon case, uh, Florence McBrien, the sister, the principal plaintiff, loved to make speeches. And so you'd ask her a question, and she would go on and on and on. Now, the lawyers, during the trial, will say to the judge, Your Honor, uh, the witness is not responding to my question. Would you please instruct her to respond to my question? and not volunteer information on questions that weren't asked her. Well, Flores would do that repeatedly. So (laughs) during the trial when she did it, I simply left the podium, walked to the back of the courtroom, sat there in the back of the courtroom as a spectator and waited for her to finish her speech. The judge was looking at me, the defense attorney, the plaintiff's attorneys were looking at me and they couldn't figure out what the hell I was doing. And finally, when she finished talking, I walked back to the podium and I said, now, Mrs. McBrien, now that you've completed your speech, would you answer my question? I mean, little <laughs> tricks like that. I mean, you know, those are things you learn over the years.
0: Yeah. One more question about cross-examination. How do you handle a surprise witness? Now, I'm sure a lot of it comes down to what you talked about earlier. It's your natural talent plus the years of experience and honing your craft. Those are the kinds of things that will make a lawyer hopefully ready for anything. But even when we're very well prepared, even when we've taken many depositions, surprises often happen at trial.
2: That's true. Uh, the reason I spoke about surprise witnesses in my book was because I really hadn't experienced – well, you do. When I was a prosecutor, we'd have often there would be surprise witnesses. We didn't have the same kind of discovery in those days that we do now. But in most civil cases, in all civil cases, you know who the witnesses are in advance. And if they're important witnesses, you take their deposition. So you don't have a surprise witness. But in that particular case, O'Keefe so versus Costello, there were three surprise witnesses that I was confronted with. One was uh, Mr. Costello's ex-wife. Uh, one was a gentleman who uh had accompanied them on their private yacht and who had done business, I forgot, maybe as a financial advisor to Mr. Costello. And the third one was Mr. Costello's sister. So all three of those were surprise witnesses. So, you know, you have to listen. This is the, what I was referring to as the cat on the hot tin roof. You listen to their testimony very carefully, and you have to figure out almost immediately what you're dealing with. The ex-wife was interesting because she had come all the way from California just to testify against my client without a subpoena. Uh, And so she's a little old lady. And so the the golden rule is you're not cruel to little old ladies on cross-examination. And I did the exact opposite thing. I went after her. I said, why the hell are you? Your husband left you. He had a girlfriend. Uh, He's not giving you the support that you're entitled to. Why are you here? Why did you come all the way across the country? Well, I, they asked they they ordered me to come. Who ordered you to come? Don't you realize a Michigan subpoena is not recognized in California? You didn't have to come anywhere. You mean to tell me you traveled three thousand miles just to to trash my client? So I went after her. And I, and I think it worked. So surprise witness. You listen, 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 and look for holes. And the golden rule again is, don't lose, don't lose.
0: Norm, one more question. What advice do you have for cross-examining expert witnesses?
2: The thing about expert witnesses is never try to be an expert yourself. Let's take a CPA, for example, a forensic accountant, which is very common in a divorce case, in a family law case. And even in a shareholder action, it could be very common. It could be common in any commercial case where the other side is producing an accounting expert to provide the jury with the damages, the numbers. And so the first thing you have to realize is that you're not, I'm not a, a certified public accountant, so I can't go toe to toe with him. I'd be a fool to do that. The second thing you have to know is that before you cross examine an expert witness, you better have your own expert to help you. Uh, hopefully, you're sitting at your side while you're examining the other side. Thirdly, and again, I'm going to go back to O'Keefe versus Costello, which is a perfect example of cross-examining an expert. In O'Keefe versus Costello, our damage expert testified that, and I don't remember the exact number, but it would cost about two million bucks a year for her to live in the manner she'd grown accustomed to. Their expert got on the witness stand and said, "No, it would cost about." $300,000, including a condominium, a nice car, da-da-da-da, a year. So I attacked his assumptions across his and I said, okay, I understand your numbers. I understand that your numbers are based on certain assumptions. Those are your assumptions based on your conversations with your client. Is that true? Yes. And your assumptions are that sh- she would have a condo that would cost X amount of dollars a year. and she'd have a nice car. Yes, she'd be able to go out to dinner. But you didn't account for the fact that she has the use of a private airplane, did you? No. You didn't account for the fact that she had the use of nine houses around the country. No. You didn't account for the fact that she has the use of a private yacht at her will. No. And you didn't account for the fact that she can go to Las Vegas and gamble like they did when they were together. No. So if you were to account for all the things I just mentioned, you might agree with my expert. He said, yes. That's an example.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
2: And the golden rule is don't lose. You may not win, but don't lose.
0: Well, it sounds like you scored a few points with that expert. And I've done some other, you know, a
2: few other tricks too with witnesses that I felt I could get away with some things. For example, instead of saying to the court, as we've seen in recent television trials, uh, I have no further cross-examination judge. I might say something like, I have no more use for this witness judge.
0: Could you get away with more, having been a judge yourself?
2: As I got older, with more gray hair, I, I guess they gave me more deference. I was given more deference, but no, I don't think that. Mm-hmm. I don't think that was necessarily true. In fact, I think there were a couple of cases where they were actually biased against me because of my success. Some of my, A couple of my former colleagues didn't like the fact that I was able to just walk away. Uh, I remember a time when uh, I had a... Case, a manslaughter case before me. And the mothers against drunk driving came in in mass. They came in to watch, it was, a, it was a bench trial, not a jury trial. And I, I had to decide whether I was going to convict the lady of manslaughter or negligent homicide, which was a lesser offense. And uh, they packed the courtroom. And I went nuts. I uh, chastised them for being in my courtroom to observe what my verdict would be and to demonstrate if they didn't like it. I said, you have no right to be here. You have a right to be here at sentencing, but you don't have a right to be here to to condemn the verdict that I reach. Uh, and, and I think that's improper. And it made the newspapers. And my colleagues couldn't believe that I would attack the mothers against drunk driving. But I didn't care if I was reelected. It didn't make any difference to me. <laughs> and so I guess, you know, they, they needed their job more than I did, I guess.
0: Yeah. Well, Norm, it really has been a pleasure. It's been great talking with you. I know we're really just scratching the surface with your storied career as a trial lawyer, but it's been a pleasure, and thank you for joining us today. You're quite welcome, Max.
1: You have been listening to The Litigation War Room with litigation attorney Maxwell Goss. Maxwell Goss represents clients in intellectual property and business cases in Michigan and around the country bringing forceful advocacy and creative solutions to every case he handles. For show notes and more episodes, please visit us at thelitigationwarroom.com. That's thelitigationwarroom.com. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to The Litigation War Room. And please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. The Litigation War Room, including the podcast and all website content and social media on all platforms, is for informational and entertainment purposes only. This podcast does not provide legal advice and does not give rise to an attorney-client relationship under any circumstance. All views, opinions, and statements expressed by guests are those of the guests making them and not those of the Litigation War Room.